Return once again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Uh, I've got about three or four scriptures that we want to read once again as sort of a, uh, a basis for our thoughts and our ideas that we began last week, uh, to continue on this week, and uh, maybe a few other weeks after this. In Luke chapter 11, verse 21, the Lord says, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Uh, coupled with this, um, it is a verse in Luke chapter 8. In verse 18, Luke chapter 8 and verse 18, the Lord Jesus says, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. We spoke briefly about this last week. Is in the text does not say, Take heed what you hear. He says, Take heed how you hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. The last, the last phrase of that verse is what's intriguing to me. Uh, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Luke 11 talked about the strong man coming in and taking away or binding a man and spoiling his house. Uh, Luke 8 talked about taking from a man what a man thinks he has. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul says here to us, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Uh, we've got a lot of scriptures here that are encouraging us to do something. These scriptures are encouraging us to have a proper perspective on our life. The Bible discourages pride. It discourages pride from thinking people are somebody. When you look at the people in the Bible, when you look at the Old Testament characters that are in the Bible, sometimes we have a tendency to uh, over-exaggerate their abilities to function in life. That's really what this is about. When you look at people in the Bible like Solomon, like David, uh, today we will look at Noah, when you look at these people and you look at how God dealt with them in their life, you, would, you may have the tendency to think, well, if there's anybody that has the ability to stand against sin, it was these men in the Old Testament. They led extraordinary lives. God dealt with them in extraordinary and supernatural ways. And yet, when you go back and you read all of their lives and you read what happened in their life, there's not a single one of them that was any better than any of us. At any point 
any of them thought, well, I'm strong enough, I can withstand the devil. I'm wise enough, I can outsmart the devil. I'm close to God, surely the devil's not going to bother me. You don't get any closer to God than Adam. He's just one generation removed from God. And the devil took him down. Solomon, the wisest man in the Old Testament, was taken down by the devil. David, a man after God's own heart, taken down by the devil. And Noah, the man that we will look at today, a gracious man, taken down by the devil. The purpose for these sermons is to remind us that there's not a single one of us who in and of ourselves are strong enough, wise enough to withstand the tricks and the deceitfulness of the devil. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, be strong in yourselves. I should have got a few boos on that one. That's not what the text says. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Uh, we, we have sort of an attitude or a problem kind of reckon it's worldwide, but we do know it's here in America. How close can I get to the edge without falling off? and still be an okay person. There was a story told from some many years ago that there was a, a rich king in the land who was looking for a man to drive his carriage. And he had interviewed uh, three people and he said, how good of a driver are you to drive my carriage? And one man said, well, oh, king, I, I could get within uh, a foot of that cliff and never fall off. And the next man said, well, I can get even closer than that. I can get within six inches and never fall off. The third man said, I wouldn't get you anywhere close to it. And he says to the third man, you're the one that's hired. So often we spend our lives trying to see how close we can get to the edge and not fall off. Rather than seeing how far away from the edge we can be and how close to God we can live. Turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 6 and let's begin reading with the life of a man named Noah. Each individual that we look at, uh, be it Adam, Noah, uh, Abraham, Moses, there's a little characteristic uh, in their life that we want to magnify a little bit. In Genesis chapter 6, it says in verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Uh, th this concept that the Lord repeats here, that I will destroy man and beast from the face of the earth, he repeats this a number of times. Notice verse 13. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Well, this is hard teaching. This is a hard instruction to know. I'd like for you to notice here, uh, specifically in verse 13, that he says, I will destroy them with the earth. Uh, we have spoken a few weeks ago about the subject of hell, whether or not hell is a real place. Uh, and that you, you will run into some denominational groups around here that don't believe that hell is actually a real place. Uh, and that whenever you find the word destroy, well, that just means burned up like, like you burn up a piece of paper. It's completely obliterated and it's gone. Well, I'd like for you to notice here that he said he was going to destroy them, which is man and beast, with the earth. Well, did God destroy man and beast at that time? Yes, he did. Did he destroy the earth? Well, he would have to have done it because that's what the text says. So obviously from this context, the earth still exists, does it not? We're standing on it today. Obviously the term destruction does not mean burn up like a piece of paper is burned up and ceases to exist. It means the function of that thing is either destroyed or completely changed. And the function of the earth was completely changed at that time. Uh, I do believe, I do believe that the continents were one great bit of land as scientists have speculated in the past. I do believe that if you take the east coast of South America and shove it over to the west coast of Africa, I believe they do look like they fit together like pieces of a puzzle. I do believe that what we have today is nothing like what the earth used to be. As a matter of fact, even if you look at a, a map of the United States, as you start on the east coast of the United States and move westward, it's a lot of flat land for a while. And then all of a sudden you get over here to Colorado and it just looks like the front end of a car was smashed together. I, maybe the United States was a lot bigger at one time. And through the course of the flood and the change of the earth, some things kind of compacted. And, you know, that's my speculation on it. it that's just what it kind of looks like to me. The Lord is informing Noah here some great changes are fixing to occur. Some drastic changes are fixing to occur. And the reason that they are going to occur is that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Verse 5. It almost leads us to think that there was no limitation to the wickedness of man. And have you ever noticed that in life that there are some pretty dumb people when it comes to having common sense? There are some pretty dumb people in this world as far as having common sense. But when you look at the mischief and you look at the evil and you look at the terror that people have in life, they are some dumb people as far as common sense is, but there are some creatively evil people. Isn't it amazing they are so creatively evil and yet so ignorantly common sense? I, I think maybe we should change that. Maybe it's not common sense. Maybe we have uncommon sense. Because if it was common, everybody would have a little bit of it. The problem with common sense is, is you suffer from it, not because you have common sense, but you're dealing with those who ain't got any. Well, the Lord says that he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. 
Now, you might would think, though, once the Lord goes through what He does here in wiping the earth clean, and He starts over with Noah and his family, maybe the earth gets a little bit better. Well, that's not the case either. Because when you turn to Genesis chapter 8, after the flood is gone, after Noah has come out of the ark, Noah uh, builds an altar and offers a burnt offering there in, in 8 and verse 20. The Lord says in verse 21, The Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Uh, there are a lot of things that the Lord establishes here as to being promises and patterns uh, for the rest of the time that humanity exists on this earth. I, I'm not the least bit concerned about destroying the earth through what we call global warming or climate change or whatever liberal mindset people have in this world. God has promised us that as long as this earth lives, as long as He suffers it to exist, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. So when I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s and they were warning us and scaring the children about the coming ice age, they were wrong. I've lived long enough to realize the scientists were wrong. So now they're terrorizing children, telling them we're going to just burn up. The temperatures of the earth are going to continue to rise and we're just going to all melt. Guess what? I think your children will live long enough to think the scientists were wrong. You know why they're wrong? Anyone who's not in harmony with God will always be proved to be wrong. Every single time. But going back to what we were addressing earlier, well, maybe once Noah came off the ark, uh, humanity got a little bit better. And it wasn't but, wasn't but eight of them. Surely they could figure out how to keep things together. No, he says here, every imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. You don't have to teach children to lie. You don't have to teach children to steal. You don't have to teach people to be jealous. You don't have to teach people to be evil. It's just a part of their life. Uh, <clears throat> when we moved into the house that we live in uh, 20 years ago, the folk that lived there before us had planted a uh, flower bed out by the street under the telephone pole. And it's planted with some bulb or something that comes, it grows, it dies, it grows, it dies. It, it regenerates every year. It's a, called an annual, I believe, is what that type of plant is called. Uh, you ladies in here that know what you're talking about, don't crucify me over that. But here's the point. 
those flowers had to be planted. They didn't grow on their own. But thanks to uh, squirrels and storms and hurricanes, uh, the last year or so I've had to deal with pine trees growing in there and I've had to deal with privet growing in it and I've had to deal with all sorts of things and I'm not about anymore to get out there in the middle of the summer when it's 105 and dig up a flower bed, flower, flower bed and dig out all the trash in it. We waited till it was a little cool. So David and I got out there yesterday with our, our mattocks and our shovels and our hatchets and everything and we dug up the entire flower bed, bulbs and all. Don't worry, we're going to plant them back. Maybe. <laughs> and we dug up the pine trees and we dug up the privets and we, but there was one of them. There was one that had a root about, it had to be 10 inches, 10 inches, no, it's a, it had to be at least six inches around. It took us probably an hour to dig at this thing. At least half a day we dug at this thing. All day long, day and night, we dug at this, at this weed. And he's trying to figure out, why is this one so much worse than the rest of them? Well, because this one has a combination of about four different plants that all grew in the same spot, and then they grew together. And so four of them created one great big root. I said, you know, David, this is why the Bible tells you, you know, root out bitterness or lest the root of bitterness springing up uh, spoil you, spoil other people. Uh, there are a lot of people that have not just one problem, they have multiple problems. You have a problem that grows in from over here, you have a problem that grows in from over there, another one that grows in from another direction, and sometimes they have a tendency to kind of all grow to the same spot. They all grow together and they create this gigantic root that if I'd have dealt with one here or one there, it wouldn't have been that big of a problem. But now that I got to deal with four of them all at one time, I got this 10 inch root, 12 inch root here that we're digging up with backhoes and front end loaders that you see how life gets sometimes? Life's complicated. Life's not just one and done, as in you get one problem and you're done with it. Life is oftentimes a combination of multiple problems that you're dealing with all at one time. You're going to find that, I think, in Noah's day. I think you're going to find in Noah's life you've got this kind of issue. And you, but you may look at Noah's life and you may say, if anybody had the ability to stand against the devil, if anybody had the ability to resist sin, it should have been Noah. Because as you read through the Bible, you come across this one phrase in Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Despite the report that God had given on the whole of humanity, he looks at Noah and he says concerning this man, Noah will find grace in my eyes. It wasn't necessarily because of anything Noah had done. It was because of who God was. Not only does Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord, but there is a phrase that is repeated to Noah no less than eight times. And 
I, I think it's only eight times in here. I tried to reread and make sure I had my numbering right because I found it fascinating that God tells Noah the same thing eight times. And there's eight people in the ark. And the number eight, really, if you're a numerologist, the number eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. So, for example, in the music scale that we have, there are only seven notes in the music scale. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. Seven notes. Seven makes a complete music scale. Seven also makes a complete week, right? Seven days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it's a complete. But when you get to the number eight, you're starting over. So the music scale is do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, and you start over with do. Do to do is an octave, eight notes. So the Lord is really going to start over with the human race with eight people. In that instance, he's kind of parallel to Adam because God started with Adam and he's going to restart with Noah. He started with Adam, he's going to restart with Noah, which in that instance, Noah may very well be also a type of Christ because God started with Adam. And then here comes Christ, the second man, the last Adam. And he's going to restart something with Adam that doesn't need to be restarted again. Or with, with Christ that doesn't need to be restarted again. He's going to restart the human race here with Noah, eight people in this ark. And eight times God tells him, notice verse 18. Well, verse, verse 17, let's back up. This is Genesis 6, 17. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish, look at that next phrase, my Eight times God reminds Noah that I'm going to do something to you, for you, with you, on your behalf, and it is called my covenant. In chapter 9, after Noah comes off and with your seed after you. And from this point on, almost every verse contains the phrase covenant or my covenant. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant. Verse 12, and God said, this is the token of the covenant. Verse 13, I do set my bow in the cloud and that shall be for a, to a token of a covenant between me and and the earth. Verse 15, and I will remember my covenant. And the last half of it, I may remember the everlasting covenant. In verse 17, and God said to Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. My word, what a word from the Lord. My covenant will I establish with thee. Um, The world likes to take the Bible and kind of play with it. They like to take the words that are written in God's Word and sort of play with them like they're a set of Tinker Toys or a set of Legos. The words in the Bible are written for a reason. The world confuses the word covenant and testament all the time. In the New Testament, Jesus says when he passed out uh, the Last Supper, he said, take ye and drink this. This is my blood of the New Testament. That, those are the words in the New Testament 
that the Lord says. The world has changed that word testament to covenant. Let me tell you something. The words covenant or testament are not the same thing. The word covenant and testament do have the same concept as in they are contractual agreements, but they are not the same thing. A testament. Most of you in here have a last will and testament. You've decided or tried to decide where your earthly possessions will go upon your death. The testament that you have written is nothing right now so long as you are alive. It's not worth the paper it's written on. Paul, as a matter of fact, tells us in the book of Hebrews that a, a, a testament is not in force so long as the testator liveth. It's only a force after the testator dies. A testament is what happens after you die. It becomes in effect and in force the day you die. A covenant is exactly the opposite. A covenant is an agreement between two living parties and is only in force while one or both of the parties are still alive. Once they die, the covenant is ended. So in other words, my wife and I stood 25 years, 24 years ago, long time ago, before a preacher and a whole bunch of other crazy people, and we said our do's and our don'ts and our wills and our won'ts, and we entered into a marriage covenant. And that covenant is binding on us until one of us passes this scene of life. When I pass, if I pass first, she is free from me and free to marry another. If she passes first before I do, I'm free from her and I'm free to marry another. That covenant has ended. So covenants and testaments are not necessarily the same thing because they don't have the same impact. When God says, I will establish with Noah my covenant, my everlasting covenant, he is assuring Noah that this promise is good so long as I live. And since the man, God himself, who made the covenant, will not die, the covenant will always be in force. It's always good as long as God lives. I'd like you also notice here that this is what theologians call a unilateral covenant. It just simply means it's one-sided. God made the covenant. He said, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do this for you. Sounds like a pretty good position to be in, right? I mean, if you're Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's showing up. He's making a covenant with him. And he not only says that I'm going to make this covenant, he says, but you'll be able for the remainder of your days to be able to look to the heavens and you're going to be able to see a token of my covenant, which is this rainbow that I'm going to put out here. Every time it rains, and I'd like for you to notice this also, prior to the flood, there were no rainbows. This is a covenant that is given to a new earth people. This is a covenant that God started once he changed the dynamic of the earth itself. 
He had to destroy the earth, bring about a completely different uh, geological atmosphere in order for this covenant to be seen. Only God can create. God is the only one that can create. The devil cannot create. The devil can imitate, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it is, that he has changed into an angel of light. He is not actually an angel of light. He imitates an angel of light. He may duplicate. So, for example, when Moses stood before Pharaoh and Moses cast down his rod and his rod turned into a serpent, the sorcerers and the magicians cast down their rods and they turned into, sor they turned into serpents. He could duplicate. He cannot create. He can manipulate. But I think what he likes to do the most is desecrate. This rainbow that appears out here in the heavens is God's sign that he's not going to flood this entire earth ever again. It is not the sign of wicked sodomite people running up and down the streets declaring their sin, declaring I'm here and I'm queer, get used to it. They have desecrated. They have destroyed the purpose and the visual uh, assurance that we have that God will not destroy this earth ever again. This is also a real good example to us. I have seen this gay pride rainbow so much, I'm sick of seeing it. I don't know about the rest of y'all. I'm sick of Gay Pride Month. I'm sick of Queer Year. I'm sick of all of this mess out here that is an abomination to the Lord. I'm tired of seeing it. And I don't even think that a vast majority of Americans understand that this exists. A vast number of people that I see walking the streets with their children have clothes on their children with this rainbow Painted across the front of it. Probably because it was at the child store and they thought it was cute, so I'll pick it up and they have no idea why it's there. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just a quack. But I've seen, I've seen this wicked rainbow out here in the world. It's, it's six colors, by the way. That's how you can tell the difference. The, the rainbow of the world is six. God's was seven. I say that to say, though, I've seen it so much, I'm sick of seeing it. And anytime I see a real one, it turns my stomach. Except for the ones that are in the sky. I realize they did a pretty good job up there in Kentucky with that ark exhibit, and they painted it with rainbow colors. But the only thing I could think of was back during that president's term 10 years ago when he painted the White House with rainbow colors in honor of gay pride. I thought I had, I had to stop myself. See, human beings can see something so wrong for so long they can't appreciate it when they see it right. So somebody can sit under the sound of a false minister or false teacher 
and hear something so long for so wrong and they can't see the truth when you preach it to them. You would think in Noah's day and in Noah's time, surely this man would be able to recognize evil for what it is. Because not only did he find grace in the eyes of the Lord, not only did the Lord tell him time and time and time again that I have established my covenant with thee, but there's something else that the Lord does here. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, And God remembered Noah. Genesis 8, chapter 1, and God remembered Noah. And it also said in Genesis 9 and verse 15, I will remember my covenant. You've got the God of glory saying, in your deepest, darkest troubles, I will remember you. Isaiah asked a question in Isaiah 49 and verse 15. Shall a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion upon the son of her womb. Notice the text here. Isaiah 49 verse 15 does not say, shall a mother forget her sucking child. He says, shall a woman forget her sucking child. Get Any woman can give birth, but it takes a real woman to be a mother. He says, shall a woman forget her sucking child? He says, yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. God's promise to us down through the ages is though all men forsake you, I will not forget you. Think of the, think of the situation that Noah has just gone into. God called Noah and said, bring you and your wife and your sons and their wives and come into the ark. That's what the text says here. If you read through all this in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, come thou and all thy house into the ark. Notice God did not tell Noah to go into the ark. What did he say? He says, come into the ark, which means, guess what? God's already there. God's already in the ark. He's beckoning Noah to come into the ark. Noah walks into the ark and for a week, they're shut up in here. They're shut up in here, by the way. I need to, I need to make mention of this because this is where it's, it's in the Bible. Uh, how many animals did Noah take into the ark? Y'all know how many animals that Noah took into the ark? Y'all know how many of each kind of animal that Noah took into the ark? Do you know how many? It was two of each kind, right? Do you know that there were more? Kind of puzzled, look, what you talking about, Willis? Read with me. Genesis 7, verse 2, he says, Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens. Y'all see that? The male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two. So you had unclean animals that were taken in by two, but you had clean animals that were taken in by sevens. Seven males, seven females. God is very specific about this. Seven males and seven females. Not seven males and seven more males. Not seven females and seven more females. Not seven cis animals and seven more cis animals. Seven males, seven females, two males, 
two females. The clean and the unclean. The clean were to be eaten and the unclean were to be sacrificed, really is what this is about. The clean were to be eaten, the unclean were to be sacrificed, and Noah's going to need those unclean animals to sacrifice them when he gets off the ark. See, God's thinking ahead here. God has made all these provisions for this man, Noah. And you would think, though, God said, Come thou into the ark, thou and thy family. That Noah would be able to, to, to recognize sin when it comes along. But after about a year, Noah finally gets off the ark. When Noah comes into this ark, and you read the text, <clears throat> he stays there a week. And after seven days, the rains start falling. And it rains every day and every night for 40 days. 40 straight days, it rains. Can you imagine being stuck in your house 40 days while it does nothing but rain? Well, let's stop and think about this. <clears throat> What has happened to the personality of America over the last year from being shut in their homes? Uh-huh. And it ain't even rain half the time. I guess unless you're in Seattle, it rains all the time in Seattle, right? But you, you, stop and think about what we're dealing with here. We are seeing, even in our days, what it's like for people to be shut up in their homes for an extended period of time. They get to see nobody except the same other seven faces in the ark and a bunch of smelly animals. Now, <clears throat> the ark was made three stories high. There was a lower story, upper, and third. There's, there's three stories to this thing, so maybe there's enough room for eight people to stand somewhere where they ain't got to look at another human for a while. By the way, when you read the dimensions of this ark that are laid out for you uh, in chapter 6, it tells you how long it is, it tells you how wide it is, and it tells you how tall it is. I realize we paint this ark in America, especially in children's books, as something like a boat. I'd rather suspect it's not. Because it wasn't designed to go anywhere. The ark was not designed to go from point A to point B. The ark was designed to survive the flood. It probably looks more like a great big box. And if you've got a great big box, there's so many and so many and so many, it kind of looks like a coffin. You've got a bunch of dead people here surviving this flood. Well, they're dead because they're hidden in something else. For 40 days, it does nothing but rain. They see no other soul except them same seven people. They have no entertainment. And after the entire year of the flood and the waters wasting away, Noah comes out onto something he'd never seen before comes out onto an earth that's been completely changed. There's not another human being around. 
There's not another animal around. Nothing but what he brought with him. I don't know what that would do to a person. I don't know what that would do to me. You say being shut up is not that bad. Yes, being shut up is not that bad. Walking out into a desolated, apocalyptic environment is something completely different. Your favorite third grade teacher, she's no longer here. Your favorite sports team, they're not going to play again. They're no longer here. The park where you used to go to as a kid, they're no, no longer here. The old home place where we grew up, ain't no longer here. Nothing's here anymore. You think maybe Noah get a little discouraged? You think maybe Noah get a little distressed? Depressed? It's possible. Uh, because the thought that occurred to me is when you look at a lot of these people's lives in the Bible, Noah, Abraham, we may, we'll look at him maybe. Um, they, had, they had a serious issue right after a traumatic event. A traumatic event occurred, a serious issue comes along. It happened in Abraham's life, it happened in David's life, it's fixing to happen here in Noah's life. Uh, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. And this is told to us in Genesis 9, uh, verse 18. Um, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth come all the other nations of the earth. From Shem come the Jews, uh, from Japheth comes the Gentiles, and from uh, Ham come the Africans. Noah does something in verse 20. Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he's fixing to find something out about fermentation. Verse 21, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. There, there's something interesting about this concept here. Noah gets drunk and he becomes uncovered in his tent. This seems to be a pattern that you find all through human history. It's that you have a lot of people Maybe they go off to college, they get a little bit of freedom from mom and daddy and their rigid, ridiculous rules, and they go off to college and they find themselves at a frat party. And then they wake up the next morning, they don't know where they're at, and they don't know what they've done. If you turn to the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, there's an interesting little verse that uh, kind of goes along with what is said here uh, in Genesis and in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. When you find it, say amen. amen. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Isn't it interesting that there's a tie in the scriptures between nakedness and drunkenness? People talk, oh, we just wanted to go to a party. We just wanted to have a good time. I've yet to find out how good of a time it is to get so drunk you throw up all over the place. I've yet to figure out how that's a good time. 
I've yet to figure out how it's a good time for people to say, well, we're just having a good time. We're going to get so drunk we don't even remember who we are, what we did, where we went. I've yet to figure out how that's a good time. But even above and beyond that, if you're going to get drunk and have a good time, you better trust the people you're around. I never drank in high school because I didn't trust the people I hung out with. Not that they would have killed me or hurt me, but hey, I pick on people and people pick on me and I insult people and people insult me. That's just the way people are. Um, you put yourself in this position where you are completely inebriated, you better trust full well the people you're hanging out with. Because you may very well find yourself naked riding a cow down the interstate. <laughs> you laugh, but I know a man it happened to. The day of his wedding, they couldn't find him. Because after his bachelor party, his bachelor buddies sent him for a ride. Uh, there's a reason that the country song is written, Tequila Makes Her Clothes Fall Off. Because when people get in this position, they do things that when they are sober and of sound mind, they'd have never done. Oh, I, you know what? I, I'll, I'll recognize. Once I get to that point, I'll stop. You might stop. You might stop drinking. I guarantee you that there will come a point in your life where you get to this point and you'll stop drinking. But the bottle will never stop drinking you. And it says here that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment. I'm sorry, I'm back in Genesis now. I realized I was in Habakkuk for a while, but we're now back in Genesis. So we'll turn back to uh, Genesis 9. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brethren without. Verse 23 of Genesis 9 says, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. This is a puzzling verse. It really is. And there's a lot of commentators have zero light on this verse. I do like what John Gill had to say about this. John Gill says that the scripture does not tell us what his son did. I've heard a lot of speculation over the years as to what his son did. You say, well, he was the, he was the father of the Africans and there's a lot of diseases in Africa. Some are transmitted diseases, this, that, and the other. You know, did his, did his son do something? It does say that his son did something to him. It doesn't say that his, his son said something about him. You get that? So what did he do to him? It's not for us to know. It's not for us to sit and speculate and wonder wildly what his son did. Evidently what he did was bad enough that Noah, interestingly enough, doesn't curse him he curses Canaan, his son. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses his son. 
And what do we know about the land of the Canaanites? When God delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage and led them 40 years through the wilderness to eventually inhabit the land of Canaan, when they got to the land of Canaan, it was one of the most wicked, idolatrous, sinful places on the earth. And evidently, when he awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done unto him, he didn't have to be told his younger son's reputation preceded him. See, a lot of people think, you know what my biggest problem is? My biggest problem with sin is where I'm at. Now, <clears throat> let, me, let me back up a little bit. There's a, a, a friend of mine I used to cut, uh, used to cut grass for. Uh, who had just gone on vacation. He and his wife had gone on an anniversary vacation here just recently. And he said, you know, when we left Birmingham, uh, gas was uh, 289. And then we got over here to this different place over here, and, and gas was uh, 345. And then we went over here to this other place, and gra gas was uh, 375. And I think there are some places in California now, it's nearly $7, I think. Don't quote me on that. That's right. That's right? Okay. So if you just feel worthless, move. Somebody else will find value in you. Uh, be careful the value they find in you. Because you may think your parents don't love you. When you get kidnapped on the street and sold into trafficking, those people will value, value you very highly not because of who you are, but because of what they can get out of you. But suffice it to say, the man, and I think in a joking manner, he said, well, if you just don't feel valued enough, just move. And some people think, yes, I've got problems in life, and what I need to do is I need to have a different city, or I need to have a different job, or I need to be different somewhere else, or I need to be here, there, and yonder. I, need, I don't need to be surrounded by so many other wicked people. Noah is only surrounded by seven other people. His situation couldn't have changed anymore unless he'd have gone to heaven. He did move. His environment changed. His employment changed. Everything about him changed except himself. We have to realize that our biggest problem in life is not where we're from. Not where we're at, not the people around us, not our parents, our grandparents, our children. Our biggest problem is me. Not me, you, but you are your biggest problem. I am my biggest problem. The biggest problem any one of us ever have in life is me, myself, and I. says here, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. To the groups out there that think that once an individual becomes a Christian, they can one day just walk above sin and live above sin and never have a problem with sin, the Bible doesn't teach that. 
you're going to carry sin the rest of your life. To those of us that sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And they get disappointed and surprised when people fall into sin. Wake up and smell the coffee. The person sitting next to you may be the biggest sinner you've ever seen in your life. If you were to cut them open, they may stink like a dead man. But Paul said in Romans 7, he says, the biggest problem I've got, he says, I carry around with me the body of this death. Because if I was to cut you open, you'd stink also. And no sense in us sitting here singing amazing grace, how sweet to sound, if we're not ready to dispense grace on sinners that are around. If we're going to look down our nose at everybody that comes along who's got a problem, you might as well just close up shop and go home right now. Because life ain't going to get any better. God didn't put us down here necessarily to be fruit inspectors. He did tell us, by their fruits you shall know them. So when a person lies to you, believe them. Right? But listen to this. God didn't put us down here necessarily to be fruit inspectors. He put us down here to be weight bearers. Because you notice He said, Bear ye one another's burdens. He didn't say, Sniff ye out one another's sins. I get irritated a lot of times when I hear people say, Oh, they're a good you know, person. They're faithful to attend. But you know they just can't be a member because this, that, and the other, what they did in their past. You know what? Won't you stand up here and tell me what you did in your past? Let me gut you like a fish and see how well you smell. Here's an idea. Why don't you just pull yourself up to God's table like Mephibosheth did? And why don't you just put your crippled legs under God's tablecloth of grace and be grateful you're there? That's what we all ought to do. Noah fits this bill. Because regardless of what happened here, you know what? He still found grace in the eyes of God. He still had the covenant of God. And that covenant still hangs out there in the clouds as a rainbow, proving that God is a whole lot more merciful than we give Him credit for. Now what we would like to see a lot of times is those who recognize their sin making attempt to deal with their sin. I mean, that's just reasonable anybody. I, I, don't, I, don't mind, I don't mind having a welfare state in America. God had a welfare state. He had a welfare state laid out in Israel. He said, when you farm your land, leave the corners untouched so that the poor and the downcast and the downtrodden can come by and pick the corn. But He did not say, pick the corn and take it to them. He said, if they want it, it's here for the picking. Come and get it. So I don't think there really ought to be any government job. I don't think there ought to be any government job much. I think if you want welfare, I think you ought to show up and you ought to ride the garbage truck. I think you ought to show up and you ought to drive a lawnmower down the middle of the interstate and cut the grass. That's what I think. 
You want welfare? Well, let's make it fair. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is what the Bible says if a man won't work, he ought not to eat. We all have problems in our life. Every single one of us has sins in our life. Based on the grace of God, we ought to give due diligence to rectify those problems in our life. If somebody offers help, we ought to be willing to do what we can do to help ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about Noah earning his, his route to heaven, but Paul did say, make your calling and your election sure. Live a life so I don't have to lie at your funeral. Live a good enough life, I don't have to lie at your funeral. It's just that simple. Don't put me in a bind. But we would like to see, we do like to see folks recognizing problems in their life, folks recognizing sin in their life, and being willing to do something about it. And I probably would say that for the rest of Noah's days, uh, I don't know if verse 21 here was a one-time issue or if this became a recurring thing with Noah. I know not. The text doesn't tell me. But I do know this one thing. That whether Noah got worse or Noah got better, he still lived on a planet where God was good. Regardless of what tragedy he went through, regardless of what problem he went through, regardless of what disaster faced him in the future, he had a God that never, ever changed. We need to be people who are not like the strong man over there in Luke 21 who's, who are strong in their own strength. Because we may realize that we're going to get ourselves in Noah's position and something's going to be taken from us, even that which we thought we had. We thought we were stronger than we were. Because this is what people say, oh, I can't believe that person did that. Why can't you believe it? How come you can't believe that person did that? Is that person somehow better, a better sinner than you are? That person somehow missed the plague of sin in their life? No, you know what happened to that person? That person was deceived by the devil. That person was manipulated by the devil. That person thought they were doing what was right. Didn't even know what Christ thinks. Bear ye one another's burdens. And the scripture goes on to say, and so fulfill, so fulfill ye the law. We need to be a people who were strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. A sure way to make a failure in life is to forget that verse. But a sure way to be successful in life is to remember this and be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Thank you for your kind.